Hello and welcome to the 15th episode of the Pepper Podcast. For those who are returning, welcome back. And if you are new, the Pepper Podcast covers a wide range of spicy events that occur in our daily lives. Two high school students tackle heated topics through discussion. I'm your host, Jay Metha, and joining me is my co-host, Andy Watson-Oskunpen. And today's topic will be around culture in our society and how different perspectives have led to more diversity, collaboration, and ideas. Today, we are honored to have Ty Ebel as our special guest. Ty, would you like to give us an introduction to who you are and what you do? Yeah, guys, thanks for having me on today. Um, like you said, my name is Tai Ebel, and I work for the Consulate General of Japan um, here in Nashville. Um, and in my role at the consulate, I'm part of uh, what they call the culture team. So we put on a lot of different cultural events um, within our five-state jurisdiction um, in general. And then in particular, I run our exchange program. So I have a scholarship program where we send folks over to Japan to study. Um, as well as uh, a work program called the Japan Exchange and Teaching Program, uh, where we send recent college graduates um, over to live in, and work in Japan. So I think maybe bouncing off that, um, you say that you work, you know, you're the JET coordinator um, or Japan Exchange and Teaching, I believe that you said. Um, how, like, what do you find the most engaging and fulfilling in your job as the JET coordinator? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a people person. So I really like, as part of my job, particularly in the fall around our recruitment season, um, getting out and visiting college campuses, talking to people who are interested in Japan, um, talking with people who are interested in having this kind of adventure of, of living abroad for a while after college. Um, and so, yeah, I, I really like getting out there and, and meeting with the students, um, meeting with the, the faculty and staff at universities. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess that the, the tail end of a jet season is uh, in the summer when we actually send the group off to Japan. And that's that's also a lot of fun, um, you know, getting everyone ready to go um, and then, you know, greeting them to the airport and then, you know, bidding them farewell. Yeah, I think. Go ahead, Andy. Yeah, I think that that's that's a great response. I've personally been very interested in I'm I'm very interested in language and culture. So mm -hmm. meeting somebody who, you know, is kind kind of it's kind of a trailblazer in that aspect is really interesting, and I think that's awesome. So I have a question: What programs do you implement to further the relationship between Nashville and Japan? Um, yeah, so we. You know, obviously, I mentioned the the exchange programs that I'm directly involved with running the JET program and, and the MEX scholarship program. So we've got a lot of events that we do right here in Nashville um, throughout the year. The biggest one is the Nashville Cherry Blossom Festival that takes place each April. Uh, we are just one of the organizing partners. The chief organizer of that is the Japan America Society of Tennessee. Um, and I believe this year they said it brought in about 40,000 people. Um, so it's it's a huge event, um, kind of broadcasting Japanese culture as a whole, lots of kind of pop culture gets pulled into that. Um, the other big event that we do each year is um, in conjunction with Cheekwood Gardens, um, and that's in the fall, and it's the Moon Viewing Festival. And that's more focused on traditional um, Japanese culture. Um, yep. And then beyond those two big events, there are a lot of kind of smaller one-off events that take place throughout the year. Um, and I, I thought the points that you brought up there were great. Um, but just one question before I um, ask another. Uh, so what is the MEXT scholarship? 
Yeah, so the MEC scholarship, it's, it's run through the Ministry of Education, um, and we've got technically four scholarships that Americans can apply through. Um, the you know, starting from youngest, uh, high school students are able to apply for specialized training programs, um, which kind of like going to a, a technical school in Japan. Um, there's also an undergraduate scholarship to get an undergraduate degree in Japan. Uh, for current college students who are majoring in Japanese, um, and I guess for anyone in the, the Middle Tennessee area, the only place that has a Japanese major is MTSU, um, but there are several other schools in the area with, uh, in the region with majors. Um, there is a Japan study scholarship that covers a full year of language and cultural study in Japan. Um, and then there's the research scholarship. And that's the one that we send people on the most frequently. Um, and that's to do postgraduate research, uh, to get a master's degree and or get a PhD in Japan. Um, so, and you know, going off that, so the history of Japanese American culture. So like, when did it start? How did it expand into the Southeast and, you know, in present day connections? So what's interesting to me is, you know, I live like maybe 15, 20 minutes off of uh, Nashville. And in my city, there's not many Japanese people, if any. Um, but the second I really enter um, Nashville and the heart of Nashville, there's just so many. Um, and especially I'm like really like amazed when I go to these events, um, like the Cherry Blossom Festival. And I just never realized that there are actually that many you know, Japanese people. <laughs> yeah. And for me, it's kind of like, it's it's almost like heaven for me because I'm able to practice my Japanese skills, um, like the language skills. Um, but it's just like, I didn't, I don't expect it to be, you know, the Southeast. I more expect, you know, a higher Japanese population to be in the West or the Northeast. And so, you know, how did that Japanese American culture really develop in the Southeast? Yeah, so... I guess Japanese people first started coming in, in any real numbers to the U.S. back in the late 1800s. Um, you may remember from history class, uh, Japan was a closed country for a, a few centuries until um, an American uh, named Commodore Perry came over with a battleship and, and kind of forced the country to start opening up to, to Western trade. Um, once that happened, beginning, I believe, kind of in the, the 1880s and then kind of amping up um, into the early 1900s, a lot of Japanese migrated to Hawaii and the, the West Coast. Um, mm -hmm. To the best of my knowledge, the first major influx of, of Japanese folks um, into the, the Southeast uh, unfortunately came during World War II uh, when the mm -hmm. U.S. government um, forcibly remove right. American citizens of Japanese descent, yeah. um, you know, from their homes and, and put them into internment camps. Yeah. Um, some of which were in Arkansas. Um, so at least temporarily you saw a lot of Japanese come to, to Arkansas right. those internment camps, mm -hmm. but many did, I believe, move back West, you know, once mm -hmm. given the chance. Mm -hmm. Um, Modern day, you mentioned like lots of Japanese in the Nashville area. Mm -hmm. um, I found that there aren't there aren't too many multi generational kind of. There's no Japan town within our within our mm -hmm. yeah that yeah makes sense. Um, again, most of that's on on the west coast. Um, what you'll find in this area are a lot of um, more short term. Um, residents so people who are coming you guys are probably aware bridgestone has their north american headquarters here that that's a japanese country company despite mm -hmm. the name um, yeah. nissan um 
obviously here, uh, Mitsubishi. We've got to Toyota has a massive plant to the north north of us in Kentucky and just to the south of us in Mississippi. Um, so you wind up with a lot of Japanese investment, um, particularly in manufacturing in our area. Right. Um, and that brings a lot of Japanese um, management um, and their families to come and live in the in the state for typically shorter periods, one or two years. Um, but some, you know, wind up settling and staying significantly longer than that. Um, at least in Middle Tennessee, the highest concentration of Japanese seem to be living in the Franklin area. Um, that just seems to be where everyone kind of settles. Um, and it, you, I don't know if you guys, do you guys know about the, the Japanese schools here in the U.S.? No, actually. I don't believe so. Yeah, so it's, it's a pretty interesting um, bit of history. I mean, going back to, to, to the early days of Japanese in America, um, they started setting up Japanese language only, Japanese education style schools in the country. Um, oh, for quite some time, I believe it was from 1987 until 2007, um, there was actually a Japanese language boarding school in Sweetwater, Tennessee, um, that was associated with uh, Meiji Gakuen. Um, oh, wow. And I in, in high school, I went to high school in Chattanooga, and I had the the opportunity to study Japanese while in high school. Um, and they did a lot of um, like homestay kind of things with the the students from Meiji Gakuen from from the the boarding school where they could come right, and right. Americans on weekends and things like that. Um, that closed down again in 2007, I believe. Uh, yeah. But there's, there's another Japanese, like full Japanese school um, in Atlanta. Um, and there are a lot of what they call supplementary schools. So these are schools that generally only meet on Saturday mornings um, scattered throughout the state. Um, there's one at, in Middle Tennessee State University. Um, there's one uh, at Maryville College um, in East Tennessee. Um, I believe there's one in Memphis, and there's also one in Jackson, Tennessee. Um, and the idea there is that you've got all of these, these Japanese folks who are coming to America to live for a while, um, and their kids are going to schools in America. Uh, but in order to be able to readjust to life in Japan and to the Japanese uh, curriculum when, when they finish up here, they need to stay up to date and make sure that they're learning everything that their peers in Japan would be learning, um, particularly right. with things like kanji and, and things like that, the writing system. Mm -hmm. um, and so these are opportunities where it's primarily Japanese, uh, but you will find you know, a handful of Americans as well who attend the schools um, on Saturday mornings throughout the state. Yeah, that's really interesting because I've heard of like the Jap like Chinese schools because like there are a lot of like if you look at in California and uh, New York, there are a lot of like Chinese boarding schools that kind of also mirror education systems from China and teach Chinese language. And I, I have a few friends who've gone to some, but I didn't know that Tennessee itself had one yeah. operating up until 2007. I, did, that's I really didn't either. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And so what do you find the most engaging and fulfilling in your job as the uh, JET coordinator. Yeah, well, I, I think uh, Jay asked this a, a, 
a minute ago along these lines. And it's, I, I think, interacting with folks who are really excited about Japan, um, you know, talking to, to primarily students and, and young professionals who want to engage, um, learn more about the culture. Um, and as JET coordinator, I actually get to help a lot of them find a way to go live over in Japan and kind of experience Japan directly. Yeah. No, I think it's really important that especially people who aren't necessarily from the metro Nashville area, people who are more from rural Tennessee or just the outskirts of Nashville, don't really get to interact with people of different cultures, like from Japan or from other countries as often. So like their perspective on other people and on of different cultures could be flawed. And I think that what you do and it is very important in our state and in our country in general. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, and I just wanted to mention that there were only three uh, Japan towns in the United States in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and San Jose. So they're all pretty much centered around the Bay Area. Well, sorry, yeah. Los, with yeah. the exception of Los Angeles. They're all in California. Um, and so it shows that, like, while majority of the population are in, you know, the West, you know, the West United States, there are people, you know, in these southeastern United States that, you know, are, that, you know, they're, they're coming here and they are, you know, because of either jobs or whatever for the reason. But they're also creating kind of a culture. Um, and yeah. in, in Nashville, you know, we have these special events that can really help us showcase these cultures. Um, like you said, the special, um, sorry, the Cherry Blossom Festival and the moon viewing event, you know, without those it would be very difficult for people to kind of experience what what it's like um, because you guys do like demonstrations and things like that. So I guess what I'm asking, you know, like, and first of all, like I see so many people of, you know, just different people and diverse people that came to those events and they, they, they come to just understand others' cultures. And that's really what is the bulk of our society in which how we can improve is understanding others' perspectives and cultures can help us, you know, create more um, inclusive, like, ideas and um, solutions to problems that we have currently. And so, you know, having these events that really, do, like Andy said, having these events that pretty much, like, introduce people to these these cultures, you know, especially because people in right. rural areas, um, and not just Tennessee, because you have, you know, I think the... Um, Consul General of Japan in the national is I think it's around five states, um, like you said, Kansas or Kentucky, Arkansas, um, Missouri, Tennessee, and Louisiana. Um, so uh, it's just not Missouri, but yes, sorry, Mississippi, Mississippi. Um, and so with those five states, you know, there are rural populations that really have a different kind of thinking when it comes to. Um, just any culture in general, not just Japanese culture. And right. so exposing people to that um, kind of culture and introducing them to something new is something that really teaches people, you know, more than what they normally expect. And so I guess going off that, you know, staying culturally engaged in your community is helpful. Um, but like, how do you believe that your events have like culturally impacted many in the area? Yeah, so I mean, we do surveys at the end of the events, and it's it's all quite positive. Um, I think I'll find that most of our targeted events, the lecture series and things like that, the people who are coming to those, 
uh, are already familiar with Japanese culture. Um, and so they're, you know, they're coming to learn a bit more. Um, and I think that they always, you know, they enjoy that chance to, to, to learn more about the culture. Um, the festivals draw a much broader crowd. So you have people who know almost nothing about Japan um, who are showing up to those events. And it's not actually just in the area. It's pretty interesting that at the festivals, I'll meet people who drove three or four hours because that they're, wow. they've got an interest in Japan. There's nothing quite in their area. Yeah. Um, and so they, they travel because they want to, they want to engage with the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I mean, people are always expressing that kind of uh, gratitude to be given the chance to, to learn more about Japan um, and, and to engage with Japan. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think that like, one important thing that those people take away is, you know, the education that you provide and that experience, and they can go then go and communicate that to other people and educate them about Japanese culture and what it's like, because maybe they didn't really, you know, have an interest in Japan, but now that they know more about it, then they may have an interest or they just get more educated about the topic. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a great thing. It's fun that you mentioned that, Andy. So the, the JET program that I'm in charge of, that's one of the, the main goals, missions of the JET program is that we're, we're bringing people over to Japan to work for, you know, one, two, three years. I, I did it myself and I was over there for three years. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's that initial benefit of bringing someone from outside of Japan to live in these communities in Japan and share the outside world with their host communities. Um, but the, the payoff really happens, you know, far, far into the future when these jets return to their home communities um, and find ways to share Japanese culture with their home communities, with their friends and families uh, here in the U.S. Um, so you'll find that there will be a lot of folks who, you know, maybe go into teaching when they get back to the U.S. And then they'll find ways to do Japan-focused segments, um, Japan-focused le- lessons uh working those into the syllabus um, or, you know, volunteering at festivals, um, getting involved with sister city organizations and and things like that. Um, And so I think, yeah, there's definitely something um, to kind of teaching people, showing people, um, you know, fascinating things about another culture um, with the understanding that they're not only, you know, learning for themselves, but, you know, if they get enthusiastic, if they get really energized about it, that they're going to share what they learn um, with with an even broader spectrum of people. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great response. Um, I have one question. Uh, what do you recommend to people who are listening to stay culturally engaged in their communities? Oh, that's a that's a tough one. I mean, it depends. It is, yes. <laughs> to some degree, it depends on how much time you have. Um, right, right. What resources are available in your communities. Um, kind of painting with a broad brush, uh, I think that universities are often uh, great ways to stay culturally engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, universities have a lot of programming that's primarily targeting their students. Um, but oftentimes, a lot of their programming will also, you know, in the evenings, the lecture series and things will be open to the public as well. Um, so I would say you know, keep track of what your local university has going on. Um, and even most, you know, a lot of smaller towns in the region 
have universities. Um, so that's a that's a great way to stay engaged, to, to look for opportunities to learn um, with these kind of free lectures and things that, that, that universities might offer. Um, if you've got more time, um, check and see if there's any sort of sister city relationship um, with your home city, hometown, um, and someplace else in the world. Um, Nashville in Japan in particular, we've got a sister city relationship with Kamakura. Um, so there are ways that you can kind of, Japan is what you're particularly interested in, and you live in Nashville, that you can engage with the sister cities and then find another way to engage with Japan. Um, yeah. Obviously, self-study uh, mm -hmm. can, can go a long ways. Uh, if if you really want to devote some energy to it, uh, you could look at hosting a, a foreign exchange student. Mm -hmm. uh, my family hosted a couple when I was growing up, and I, in fact, was a foreign exchange student in Japan uh, back in high school. Oh, um, so, yeah, there really are lots of different ways that you can you can engage with the outside world. You can you can broaden your cultural outlook, um, just you know, depending on how much you want to put into the effort. Yeah, and I think that's great that you mentioned that. Um, speaking of which, like the sister cities of Nashville have around eight. Um, so Belfast, North Ireland, Cayenne and France, Edmonton in Canada, Kamakura in Japan. Uh, Madgenburg in Germany, Mendoza in Argentina, Taiwan in China, or Tai Yuan, and Tamworth in Australia. So we have eight um, sister cities in Nashville alone, and across you know across the you know the state and um, and the, the region and the the nation, there are multiple sister cities in different places that you know we might not have here. And so it's good to, you know, maybe reach out and see the other cultures in your area to figure out, you know, what you enjoy um, and what, what you're planning on doing. Um, but, you know, just maybe some like personal um, before we do it personal, like what programs I, I think you've mentioned this before. But, you know, what programs do you have to bring students to Japan and then vice versa as well? Yeah, so most of those exchange programs that are bringing students over to Japan are actually run through sister city organizations. Um, so we'll assist with those from, from time to time, but most of those are more um, grassroots, kind of community-driven. Uh, there are occasional programs run um, in conjunction with the Japanese government, like the, the Kakahashi Exchange Program, um, in which we'll select uh, high school and sometimes college students uh, to go over on exchanges to Japan. Um, but there's not a, you know, a, there's not a predictable timeline for those or a way to apply to those. They just, they just kind of come up periodically um, when, when Japan notifies us of an opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and then like also major, like the major embassy, um, of course, is not Nashville. So where is that located? So that'll be in Washington, D.C. Okay. Um, and yeah, I think that's a, that's an important distinction between an embassy and a consulate. Mm -hmm. um, if usually if there's only one foreign mission in a country, that foreign mission is a is an embassy, and that's based at the the national capital of that country. Um, so the you know the Japanese embassy in the U.S. is in D.C. Um, the U.S. embassy in Japan is in Tokyo. Um, when you're dealing with larger, wealthier countries that have lots of connections uh, with each other, you'll often find that they have consulates as well. Um, and so Japan has, I believe, 17 consulates 
spread throughout the U.S. Um, two of them are in California. There's also one in Oregon and one in Washington, um, one in Hawaii, one in Guam, and one in Saipan. So just in that that corner of the country, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, you've got a pretty high concentration of them. Um, but yeah, sorry, back to your original question. That the, the embassy is based in um, D.C. and they deal with kind of national level things. Um, the ambassador, for instance, is meeting with, um, you know, the House, the Senate, um, meeting with perhaps the, you know the president in in certain situations. Um, whereas the consul general, um, our boss, um, is meeting with governors and is meeting with uh, state politicians, meeting with mayors, that sort of thing. And I guess going off what you said, you know, how has, you know, the consulates um, discussions with, you know, governors and presidents of like businesses in the area, how has that really changed? Um, I guess like the, not necessarily the composition or like, have you seen a change in the way that um, things are run in the more sense of there's more collaboration and diversity? I, I mean, I think... With anything like that, it, it ebbs and flows. Um, obviously, some um, administrations are more keen on engaging with uh, with diversity or you know engaging with Japan than than others. So I think it, it depends on um, you know depends on who's in charge. Um, and so yes, sometimes you'll find uh, you know really strong. Uh, relationships, and then it quiets down for a little bit, and then it then it starts building back up again. Um, but historically, uh, there has been a, a lot of um, a lot of support and a lot of cooperation um, within our region, and particularly just to call out uh, Tennessee and Kentucky, where um, Japan is the the largest um, source of direct foreign um, investment for both states. Um, and here in Tennessee, we I think Japanese investment supports um, somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty thousand Tennessee jobs. Oh wow! Um, and because of all this Japanese investment, because of all these um, economic ties, I think in particular is where you see the the relationship between um, you know if we're speaking about Tennessee in particular between Tennessee um, and Japan um, really flourish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just going back to what you said about like the sister cities, I know in ninth grade for my so like two years ago for me, I was approached by my principal and he had like this paper and there were apparently some like Japanese students from our sister city in Japan. And they were going to come and like spend the week with like to see how a U.S. school like public school worked. And unfortunately, it was canceled due to COVID. But I thought that would have been a great opportunity and for me to like help them and show them around how the school works in the U.S. And I think that it would have been a great experience, but, you know, unfortunately, things didn't plan out. Yeah, COVID got in the way of a lot of things, and it, it's still getting in the way, unfortunately. Um, but I think things are starting to open up. So for the last two years, for instance, it wasn't possible to go um, as a foreign exchange student to Japan to, to study abroad in Japan. And, and now um, we're able to start issuing those visas um, business visas are opening up. So we are starting to see some of that um, face-to-face exchange becoming a possibility again. I, I think yeah. it was interesting during the pandemic, um, seeing the way that a lot of different community groups 
tried to adapt by shifting over to to Zoom engagement and pen pal kind of relationships, um, which was you know it was heartening to see that they were they were working to keep those things alive. Um, but obviously, nothing nothing quite beats the real deal of getting on the ground in a foreign country right. and having that kind of intensive experience. Yeah, and you mentioned that and, you know. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead, Jerry. So, um, and you know, like how you said, like you when you were younger, uh, you were exposed to Japanese culture and how you um hosted some foreign exchange students and how you went and you became a foreign ex- exchange student yourself. Um, how has that really kind of really, you know, I guess, developed your culture or your sense of culture for um, Japan and eventually um, making you wanting to work for the Japanese consulate as the, you know, culture or jet director? Yes. I mean, going back in, I don't know if this is quite an answer to the question, but but I remember in high school before I went to to study in Japan, before I went to have that homestay experience, I was actually pretty introverted. Um, I was, as a little kid, I wasn't introverted, but, you know, you get to high school and, well, you guys are living this world right now. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I got rather quiet. And But when I went over to Japan, I think it was just, um, it was a different culture. And I think that the fact that I was unique over there and people were so excited to talk to me and engage with me, um, I really came out of my shell a lot. Um, and so my, you know, my, my mom jokes that she sent off an, uh, an introvert and got back an extrovert um, <laughs> just in the summer that I spent over there in Japan. Um, speaking more broadly, I think the more you travel, the, the more you see, the more curious you become. Um, so Japan was my first experience kind of living abroad. Um, but I, I went on to study abroad in Italy in college um, to go back to the JET program in uh you know, after after college, um, then working uh, or going to college or sorry, going to graduate school in Canada, um, working in Mongolia for a while um, and just traveling. I've, I've been to over 100 countries at this point. Um, so I'm, I, I guess it it turned me into a bit of a travel and, and culture junkie to some degree. Wow, that's awesome. you're very uh, accomplished in that sense. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to ask this final question. Uh, what is your favorite thing about Japan? Man, my favorite thing about Japan. Um, I mean, I, whew, that's a tough one. I think <laughs> one of the things that I really appreciate about Japan um, can be, and I recognized it when I was living over there, um, mm-hmm. it's the appreciation that they give to kind of the, the fleeting things. Um, yeah. Here in America, to some degree, growing up, you know, it's air conditioning during the summer, heat during the winter. You can kind of live in a bit of a bubble. You can go to go to right. the grocery store and get strawberries any time of the year. Um, you're kind of disconnected from from nature and to some degree from time. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in Japan, I mean, the, we just got through cherry blossom season, but you know. The, the amazing thing about the cherry blossom tree, it's a beautiful tree. You know, there are a lot of beautiful flowering trees that retain their beauty and their flowers for much longer than a cherry blossom tree. Um, but I think what makes the cherry blossom tree so special, and this kind of captures the beauty of Japanese culture, is how fleeting it is. You know, right. it's only right. at peak beauty for 
a few days to a week. Um, and in Japan, they'll actually have kind of like a weather forecast. They'll have these forecasts where they're letting you know when the cherry blossom trees are going to peak. And people are are planning kind of in the moment um, to go out and take advantage of this, this really brief uh, opportunity to enjoy, you know, passing beauty. Um, in, in the fall, I remember the the fruit, uh, the produce, you know, the, the air would be changing and I would just know that, oh, it's 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 cocky, like uh, persimmon season is coming along or the the, the Mekon uh, oranges are, well, you know, going to be popping out pretty soon. Yeah. Um, the the Takenoko, the um, bamboo shoots um, in the spring. So just the way that there are these these special things that you can only get at certain times of the year that you can only get in certain places. Um, and I think that the Japanese do a really good job recognizing and celebrating those things. Right. I think that that was beautifully put. And uh, just to end things off, what is your favorite thing about Nashville? Oh, Nashville. Um, I mean... <laughs> I, I love me some hot chicken. <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I think Nashville is just, it's, it's a great city. It's, it's a good size city. You, basically anything that you want to do, you can, well, you can't go to the beach here really, but um, yeah. <laughs> hard to go skiing, but any sort of city activity that you want to do, you can find a way to do it. Um, having this reputation as music city, you know, all these great, um, musicians and performers come through town. Um, to some degree, we can kind of punch above our our weight class when it comes to uh, you know attracting that kind of talent um, to the city. Great restaurants, um, and at the same time, it's. I mean, I live a couple miles from from the downtown core and a, a couple blocks from a you know from a park. Um, so you can just get out in nature and have you know the ability to relax and be among trees. Um, at right. the same time as as having access to all of these these great you know cultural culinary um, experiences, mm-hmm. yeah. And with that, our discussion comes to an end. We thank you for listening and hope you'll stay tuned for future episodes. Don't forget to follow the Pepper Podcast on Instagram, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Google Podcasts. Thank you once again. One other thank you, uh, Mr. Evil, for being on this podcast as a special yeah. guest. We you're appreciate our first, it. You're yeah. our first special guest, so you really set the bar high. Right. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, guys. This uh, was fun. Thank you.